Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm talking to acclaimed author Joanne Harris. Joanne is an Anglo-French writer whose books include 18 novels, two cookbooks and many short stories. Her work is extremely diverse, covering aspects of magical realism, suspense, historical fiction, mythology and fantasy. Her novel Chocolat, published in 1999, sold over a million copies in the UK alone and was adapted for the big screen in the year 2000. Joanne is an honorary fellow of St Catherine's College, Cambridge, and was awarded an MBE in 2013. Her latest book, A Narrow Door, was published in August this year. Joanne, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Sarah. Well, it's an absolute delight to have you on here today. I said just before I started recording that I'm a big fan, so it's wonderful to be chatting to you today. Oh, it's very nice. Thank you. Let's start off by going back to your childhood. You were born and raised in Yorkshire, the daughter of two teachers. And as I understand it, growing up, you felt slightly removed because of the fact that you were raised in a bilingual family. Is that correct? Well, actually, French was my first language. My mother didn't speak any English at all when I was born. So I kind of picked up English by the time I got to school. But yes, we were a very different family. My father was a very good linguist. And so He basically was quite happy just to speak French at home forever. And he still does. Both of them still do just speak French at home and French to me and my brother when we go along. So, yes, I imagine in Yorkshire at that time, that probably was a little bit exceptional. It was unusual, yes. Did you read a lot as a child? Yes, I did. I mean, I remember the house being full of books. There wasn't a lot of furniture, but there were bookcases full of books. Most of them were French books and they weren't suitable for me, but there were some children's books. And most of my early reading was in French. But then when I went to school, I started to buy books of my own and to get books of my own from the library, which was a big resource at the time. It was the way I got to to explore all kinds of things. Yeah, the memories of being able to go to the library as a child. I mean, for any book lover, that's just such a wonderful part of memory, isn't it? Going along and getting that pile of books that could just take you anywhere. And the fact that you got to take so many of them and take them home. Oh, well, I wasn't allowed to take many of them at all. Oh, really? I remember arriving at our library and I was seven years old. I was allowed to join at seven. And it was a rather remote place right at the top of the Civic Hall in Barnsley. And it was a big cavernous cathedral of books. And when I arrived there, I thought, oh, how wonderful I'll be able to to see all these books. And then the librarian stopped me from going in and said, no, no, these are for adults. Here's your library. And there was just one shelf of books. But by a process of attrition, I managed to persuade her to allow me to get one adult library book ticket out per month. And it was a big deal because... She was supposed to vet the book. It was supposed to be a suitable book. If she thought it was unsuitable, then she would put it back on the shelves and I wouldn't have one that month. And at the end of the month, when I brought it back, she would ask me questions and make sure that I'd understood it because I was there on sufferance and it was a privilege. So the whole business of getting books was fraught with tremendous difficulty and it took a lot of thought. (laughs) That sounds incredibly stressful. I'm surprised it didn't put you off a lie. It was a bit. (laughs) 
Do you remember a point where you discovered reading? I mean, it sounds like you were surrounded by books from a very early age. Is there a point where you suddenly realised that you enjoyed reading or was it just always there? I was a slow learner at first. Maybe it was because French was my first language, but I remember arriving at primary school and reading just didn't make sense to me at all. I just didn't understand how it was supposed to work, the phonetics of it, and it was just very frustrating. And my parents couldn't help me because they were too busy and also my mother was not in a position to help me in English. And then kind of overnight, something just clicked and I could read. And then within a very short time, I was reading everything. And I was being sent to the junior school because I'd already read all the books that were in the infant school library. And so I was way ahead of everybody else. And so it was a kind of weird growth spurt. But yes, I think it was around that time that I stopped being read to and started to read for myself. I must have been about five or six at that time. And then I just took off and I would read everything suitable or unsuitable within reach. And in both languages, because I picked up reading in French because I'd been read to so much. Oh, that's lovely. So you got the two different cultures through books, because it's funny, I talk about this quite a bit. It's interesting speaking to people when you kind of compare your experience as a child, what influenced you in terms of both books and television as well. I don't know, I was quite naive. I lived overseas for a while and I I always thought that everybody had had access to the same books, but you having the access to the books that were in French and English meant that you got a really lovely variety, I'm sure. Yes, that's right. Because my French grandfather didn't speak English and my English grandfather didn't speak French, then I got books from both sides of the grandparents' family. And also I got everybody's stories because being an only child at the time... I liked to listen to the stories that adults told and I was just interested in their lives and what they'd been like when they were young and what it was like during the war and and what their job was like and all these things. And so all of that was part of this tradition of storytelling in the family, whether it was about books or whether it was just about personal experience. It all seemed to feed the same kind of thing for me. Sounds fantastic. What was the first book you remember reading? I think it was a book called Treasury of Poetry by... Hilda Boswell. She was the editor, I suppose, and it was a lavishly illustrated, beautiful book of poems. And I didn't know anything about English poetry. My parents weren't really knowledgeable about it. And so I must have got it maybe for my third birthday. And I thought it was fascinating. And at first I just looked at the pictures and then I would get people to read me the poems. And there were all kinds of things in there. There were comedy poems like the Jumblies And there were sort of classic children's poems like Wink and Blink and Nod. And then there were things from William Blake and from Tennyson and all sorts of things. And of course, I didn't know any of these people. And I just kind of took them as they appeared, just as beautiful stories in a slightly different medium to what I was used to. That's interesting, actually, because I looked up the book when I I realised we were going to be talking about this today and it's not available anymore. But I I saw lots of images of people that are selling it on the second hand market. And it does look like a very, you know, a very appealing book, especially for young children. There's quite a few books that we sell in the shop where there's been kind of quite a resurgence in children's poetry recently. So there's a few of my favourites. There's a poem for every day of the year and a poem for every night of the year, which is exactly that kind of concept where um, there are some that are kind of a bit silly and a bit funny, but there are some that they're just lovely poems. And I think it's so wonderful getting poetry in front of children at a young age. Yes, it is. I think there's absolutely nothing that stops children from appreciating poetry, except adults who tell them that it's different or that it's difficult or that it's worthy, because actually children, I think, naturally gravitate to sounds and to phonetic impressions, and sometimes just to the brevity of the idea expressed in a little poem, and and they pick them up. I remember 
learning a lot of these poems off by heart because it was just fun. It was fun to do it. And you could do it, so why not? So after finishing school, you went on to read modern and medieval languages at Cambridge University before I understand you briefly worked as an accountant. I I did. I was the worst accountant in the world because I was absolutely not qualified to be an accountant for a start. I've got dyscalculia, which means that I can literally not process or remember numbers. But it was a job and they were taking anybody who had left university with a degree. And I was desperate to get a mortgage on a house. And they wouldn't do it if I was in full-time education. What I really wanted to do was going to teaching. But I took this as a kind of interim job to try and get a mortgage, which is exactly what I did. And then they kicked me out when they realised that I was never going to be what they wanted me to be. <laughs> Fantastic. It's funny how it turns out, isn't it? I think also when uh, a lot of people when they're at university, maybe less so these days, but certainly when I was at university, there was that feeling of if you follow a certain path and if you do certain degrees, there's certain careers that you should be going into. And accountancy was definitely one of those careers. That you, that's some way, you know, it's a very sensible job. It was a very secure job. Yes, I quite hated it. And I hated everybody I knew there. And they all hated me. So it was definitely not for me at all. It was like being a a character in a Terry Gilliam movie. It was completely surreal. And uh, yes, I I, I would not have prospered there. And you didn't. So you moved on and you became a teacher. I did, yes. So what drew you to teaching? Well, both my parents were teachers. My French grandfather was a teacher. And I had been brought up because you see, the thing is, teachers, when they marry other teachers, all their friends are teachers and they talk about teaching all the time. And so at dinner, I would listen to my parents talking about teaching. And I realized that schools were these places where dramas were being reenacted every day. And I thought it sounded great. And it was really the only thing that I knew. It was the only job that I knew anything much about. And by the time I left school, I knew more about teaching than most people who had been in teaching for 10 years because. I'd received all this drama and these tragedies and farces from the stories that my parents told. And I really thought of them as being stories. It was a sort of soap opera. I followed it and I thought it would suit me. And also, I think my parents, because they didn't know anything else, guided me towards it. They kind of assumed that that's where I would go. And so I kind of caved to a sort of genetic pressure, if you like. And I realized that, yes, I liked teaching and I was good at it. And it suited me. So at what point did you start to write then? Oh, pretty much when I started to read. I think I was writing stories almost as quickly as I was learning to read. And I was telling stories even before I could read. I I was always making up little stories. I remember when I used to go to bed and my mother would say, now, no more reading. And I would wheedle and say, you know, well, can I just imagine then? Can I think And she would say, well, yes, of course you can think. And so I would lie there and make these long, elaborate stories up because it was almost as good as reading them for myself. And so, yeah, I mean, I was always making things up. And as soon as I was able to, I I wrote stories that were basically copies of things that I liked. And because I liked a certain kind of book, I wrote a certain kind of story. And and I was quite good at doing that, of of parodying other people. But it took me a really long time to find a, a style of my own that belonged to me. Yeah, I think when you're younger, particularly, there's a lot of imagination, but actually, like you say, the writing style itself, it's very easy to emulate other people. So the book that was life changing for you in terms of a career was Chocolat, which um, was published in 1998. Am I right in thinking that you just didn't expect it to be the success that it was? No, not at all. I'd been told that it wouldn't be a success and that it would be very difficult to place because it was neither straight out commercial fiction or any kind of modern fiction that was in vogue. 
It was a bit too literary to be one thing. It was a bit too fanciful to be the next. They just didn't know what it was. They liked it, but it had already been turned down by a lot of different people and Transworld took it on a kind of hope that it would take. But there was no great feeling that it was going to be the next big thing at all. It took everybody rather by surprise. And I think it was just quite lucky that it dropped at the right time. It was a time at which... What was in vogue was quite bleak, quite miserable writing with no adjectives in it and a lot of very worthy but rather bleak themes. And along came this book, which was full of this tremendously vivid prose and it was all about food and it was all about sensuality and and it was all about how it was okay to like yourself and to indulge yourself and to be tolerant of your flaws. And I think it was just, it came at a time when it was a big change from what was fashionable. And I think that helped quite a lot. Mm, Absolutely. I think the imagery in your books is really strong. You can always see it in front of you when you read. And I think that's probably something that really appealed. So these days you live in Yorkshire. Yes, I've always lived in Yorkshire, actually. So you've never gone away. You've always stayed, but you've moved around. No, I I went away to university, but no, I've, I've, I've not really moved more than a dozen miles from where I was born. I think everybody assumes that I must have moved to some place like LA or London or something but no it never occurred to me I like it here. Yeah Yorkshire is beautiful and I understand that you do have a little taste of the USA though in, in your back garden where you write from your writing shed is called Hawaii is that right? Yes my shed is called Hawaii I can't remember who it might have been E.M. Forster who said that their shed was called London so that if somebody called and said, you know, can I speak to Mr. Forster? He would say, oh, no, no. The secretary would say he's in London. <laughs> so now I encourage my husband to tell people that I'm in Hawaii if I'm in the shed when they phone up. But I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> and so that Hawaii means quite a lot to you as a person. Well, yes. I went there to write a travel piece for a newspaper. I took my daughter and fell in love with the place. And so did she. And I had a lot of adventures there. And uh, I've been lucky enough to do a lot of different travel pieces. But that place is really kind of still my happy place in my mind. I need to go. I've not been yet, but it's on my list. So this last 18 months has obviously been a strange time for all of us. And for you as an author, it's meant that you haven't been able to get out and meet readers as you normally would. Now, in order to combat that, you took quite a novel approach. So you started posting weekly videos called This Writing Life on YouTube. Yes. Where did that idea come from? Well, the thing was, I just published a book on writing. And I was getting a lot of questions about things that I hadn't put in the book. And so I started doing little tutorials about various things on demand, really, on request. So people would go, oh, can you do something about dialogue? Can you do something about magic realism? And so I would do these. And and then I just started going, this is how a writer lives. This is what people actually do. Because, you know, when I became a full-time writer, I had no idea what writers did. And as far as I was concerned, all they did was hang around in their pyjamas and drink tea and write. And I realized that actually that's not quite true. So I thought it might be interesting for people to just know the beats of a writer's life, because I think a lot of people assume that things happen very quickly and that there's an awful lot going on. And I've been telling people repeatedly that actually, you know, if you like writing, then generally a lot of a writer's life is about writing and editing and doing things like that, because I did get a lot of people come to me after the book came out going, well, I'd love to be a writer, but I don't like writing much and I don't read And so it was a way of sort of trying to show people that it's not an easy job. It's not an easy way to make money. But if you love writing, then it will sustain you and the love of it will sustain you. 
And I think it was really clever because it was such a strange time. But what I like about the videos is they're just little sound bites. And actually now you've got this whole history, haven't you? I went on your YouTube channel the other day and I was looking back and it's so fascinating, kind of just dipping in every now and again and just seeing what was happening at that point. Well, yeah, that's right. And I do this every Monday and it's usually just a minute long. And when I was diagnosed with cancer last year, it became part of that. It was, okay, this happens. This is how I'm coping. This is how I'm continuing to be a writer. This is how I'm managing while I'm going through various therapies. And this is now how I'm recovering and going back to writing. And I think, you know, a lot of people were interested in that journey because they had similar journeys of their own. And so it was a way of connecting with those people. I was going to ask you about that because I think the way you dealt with the whole diagnosis and your recovery has been really quite inspirational. Your attitude to the announcement, which you put on Twitter, which was just done so well in the fact that you (laughs) gave the the cancer a name and you're like, we're going to get rid of this. And I also thought your video just after your first operation was really good as well because you're very matter of fact about it, but equally you're very clear about, you know, it's not an easy thing to go through. And so I think it probably gave quite a lot of people some hope. Well, certainly a lot of people linked up to me about this. And this is one of the reasons that I went public so early, because I thought, you know what, for a start, if I say it now in front of everybody, then I won't have to keep answering the same question over and over again. I'll just get it out of the way. And also, I realised that almost immediately people were going, my God, you've made me want to go and have a mammogram. I was going to skip it because of lockdown, but now I'm going and I'm really glad I did. Or people who were saying, yes, I'm having the same problem. And it's so much of a relief to see that I'm not alone, because I think a lot of people felt very alone in lockdown. And it was a way of connecting. And I mean, I was the same as everybody else. You know, I mean, I'm lucky in that I've got space here and that I work from home and I'm, I'm temperamentally not entirely all that social anyway. But it is nice to have human contact. And the internet is a great way of doing it. And so it was a good way of having a conversation about something which is still quite a taboo subject. And which ought to be demystified, because actually, the more we talk about it, the more people get treated and checked and scanned, and the less likely they are to fall seriously ill. Mm, Yeah, it's actually a subject very close to my heart, because I found out about 18 months ago that I have the BRCA2 gene, which means that I'm predisposed to uh, breast cancer. So I'm going through some uh, preventative surgeries in order to deal with that. So it it was very interesting. And like you say, it's very good to raise awareness. Mm, It is. And it's very common. It's much more common than we think. And I think women particularly have been somehow conditioned not to talk about this as if there was something slightly wrong about mentioning it. Yes, quite a few things. So when dealing with stress or difficulty, some people find that their concentration wavers and they're unable to focus on reading, on books. I've heard from quite a few people that the effect of lockdown was that that happened to them. Did that happen to you at all through lockdown or did you just find solace in books when we were going through that strange time? I think I read different things. I did a lot of rereading at first. I did a lot of reading outside of the areas in which I usually read. I didn't stop reading, but I did read in a different way. And I was aware that that was partly a response to stress. And I talked a lot about it on social media because I realised that some people there had got complete reader's block and were alarmed because they'd never had it before. Now, I have had it before and I know what brings it on. And usually it's when I've judged a competition and I've just basically overloaded myself with the same kind of book. And so I have to diversify and read graphic novels instead or read nonfiction or something like that to get you back to enjoying reading so that it doesn't feel so much like work. But I also think that people were generally very stressed by what was going on in the world and they just found it quite difficult to concentrate. 
And so I would put out suggestions like, you know what, if you can't concentrate on big novels, try short stories, try microfiction, try reading fan fiction, for heaven's sake. It's a different avenue of reading, but you need to reconnect with the simplicity of just enjoying books rather than feeling that books are a slog or they're hard work or they're too worthy or too difficult somehow. A lot of people who don't enjoy reading anymore have just forgotten what it was that turned them on to reading in the first place. And there's nothing wrong with going back to children's books if that's what it takes. And a lot of children's books bear revisiting because they're wise and beautifully written. Yes, we did an event pre-lockdown with Catherine Rundell. She was in conversation with Lucy Mangan and she'd written a little novella for, I think it was for World Book Day, called Why You Should Read Children's Books Even Though You Are So Old and Wise. (laughs) And it was just a little essay about why we should all do that. And I totally agree with you because I think children's books and also YA books are quite undervalued in a lot of ways Absolutely. and I think you know it's part of my job I have to read a lot of them and that's wonderful but you're totally right we try and encourage people to read them yes yes people should mm. what was the last book you read I just finished a book by Daisy Buchanan called Insatiable which I'm reading in fact as part of the comedy women in print prize so I'm reading a whole load of books that are technically comedies by women of all kinds of different backgrounds. It's been fascinating for me because I realised that I don't read a lot of comic fiction and that I'm not up to date on what's new in comic fiction because when I do feel like something like that, I tend to turn to somebody like P.G. Woodhouse or John Mortimer or somebody that I know from way back because those are my comfort books. So this book, it's very interesting. I've never read anything by her before. It's a very interesting exploration of what it's like to be a young woman without very much money in an industry, it happens to be the art industry, which is tremendously cutthroat. And she falls in love with a couple, a gilded couple, who she is besotted with, partly because of their wonderful shine and their lifestyle and the fact that they seem to have it so much together and they embrace her and draw her into their circle, which turns out to be an extremely complicated, rather toxic circle of swingers. And so it's a dark sex comedy. I mean, I think it's bleak in some respects emotionally, because of course, everybody turns out to be damaged. But it's a fascinating study of sexuality in this young woman who is bi and who is obviously beautiful, but also obviously hates herself and is completely unsure as to her place in the world. And I think it's beautifully handled. It's very nice. I didn't laugh out loud once, but then I forgot that I was supposed to be judging a comedy prize and I just got kind of pulled into it somehow. Enjoy the book. It sounds fantastic. So what's happening with the comedy prize? When's that going to be announced? How many books are you having to read for it? I'm reading 14 books, so it's not a great burden. I can actually take my time over them and write notes and think about them properly, which is really nice. And we're having a judging meeting in early September. So that's my summer's reading sorted. But uh, yes, I'm really enjoying it. It's been a while since I've judged a prize. And this is one I've never been near before. So it's good. Like you say, it'll introduce you to different things. So that's always really fantastic. So Are you someone that has to start and finish a book without any other interruption or are you someone that can have multiple books on the go at once? I don't tend to have multiple books of fiction going at once, but I very often have a non-fiction book running alongside a fiction book. That works very well because they don't tend to overlap in terms of characters and plots getting in the way of each other. I also tend to have a number of extremely well-thumbed books that I only read in Bath. 
And so when I'm in the bath, there are certain books that will kind of accompany me there. And because I know them so well and because they're basically comfort reads, I don't have to think too hard and I could actually pick them up pretty much anywhere. They're often books of short stories or books that I've just read to pieces. That means if they do fall in the water, it doesn't make me feel too bad that I've dropped some elegant hardback in the bath because, of course, that always happens. I was about to say exactly that. They're the ones that have got the wrinkly pages because they've been dropped. Absolutely. Sometimes people bring me these to sign and look slightly abashed. And actually, I quite like the well-thumbed ones and the ones that have fallen in the water. But yes, you can tell them. (laughs) So your latest book, A Narrow Door, uh, was published on the 4th of August. It is the last in a trio of a set of books set at St. Oswald's Grammar School, following on from Gentlemen and Players in Different Class. What is the book about for anyone that doesn't know? Well, it stands alone, but it's also the continuation of an ongoing story, the story of St. Oswald's Grammar School for Boys, its Latin master, the rather traditionalist Roy Straitley, who has been hanging on by his fingertips to his job because he loves the school, because he has no family and because teaching is all he knows. He's close to retirement and, in fact, should probably have retired by now, but has had to rise to certain challenges in previous books, certain scandals, and the school has gone through some rough times. In different class, a crisis team was brought in to try and fix this failing school, and the other main character of A Narrow Door was the deputy headmistress, who was part of this crisis team. In A Narrow Door, she is now the head, and she has brought her new way of thinking to the school to effect a number of changes, a number of new buildings, a whole different regime, and girls in the school for the first time. Obviously, dear old Mr. Straitley, who is now a department of one because nobody wants to learn Latin anymore, just finds this absolutely unbearable, you know, whiteboards, email, and now women. (laughs) And so he and the new head are not aligned at all in terms of their agendas, but they do respect each other. And when a body is found, or at least what we think is probably a body, on the site of one of the fancy new buildings, Rebecca Buckfast, the headmistress, seems to know rather more about it than she's saying, and ensues a kind of relay of story between these two characters. As Buckfast's past comes out, and we realise how much, in fact, she is involved in the presence of this body and and how much it ties in with her past. And Straitley, who of course wants to go to the police immediately, is held back by the fear that another scandal on top of everything that's happened will just take the school down with it. And so he needs to hear this story before they can move on. And so it's a story within a story, several stories within a story of murder and revenge, and of course of smashing the patriarchy, because this is absolutely Buckfast's agenda from the start. Yeah, I think the interaction between the two characters is fantastic. Like you say, it's the the old regime versus the new regime. It's fantastic. So as you say, it's one of three books based in the same school, but they can be read standalone. When you first started out writing these books, did you know that you were going to have a number of them? Or was the first one just thought of as a standalone and then it kind of evolved? I didn't plan it because I never do with these things. I got involved in that fictional world and its characters and I realised that Having taught in schools for so many years and having been privy to goings-on in schools for such a long time, I realised that all schools are a kind of soap opera. And I realised that there would always be another year. There would always be new developments. And so I went back to it. But I was quite reluctant to write about teaching initially because, I don't know, I think partly because some of my colleagues were still alive. (laughs) But, you know, it took me a while to settle into giving myself permission to do that and also fictionalising something that until recently, had been my actual life. 
obviously the plots are made up. It's all fiction, but there are lots of little details which I couldn't possibly have come up with if I hadn't had the personal experience. I had a lot of fun playing with the characters, which are, you know, although not taken from real life, not a million miles away from people I've really known. I'm glad you clarified that there wasn't a murder at any of your schools. Oh, I'm sure there must have been. <laughs> There's a murder in pretty much every school. But no, I, if there was, it wasn't the one I was writing about. <laughs> <laughs> Do you write such a range of books? How have you found the experience of writing these different styles? Do you adjust your writing mode or is it fairly consistent? Do you have a process that you follow? I don't think I do write in different styles. I write in different genres, I suppose. But those things are mostly determined by marketing people after I've written the book. I've never been completely sure what genre I wrote in and nor have a lot of other people either. You know, I think I started off the first thing I wrote was a vampire novel, but it was far too literary to be a commercial vampire novel. So what was it? What was it supposed to be? And, and then I wrote a kind of Victorian ghost story, which was, you know, a little bit like Sarah Waters' book Affinity, which I think probably came later. And then, and then I wrote Chocolat, and nobody knew what that was either. And so I'm constantly writing these books that challenge people's notions of what genre is. I mean, some of what I write is outright fantasy, and I'm okay with that. It's based on legends and myths. And within that sector of what I write, people know they're going to get the supernatural and this kind of thing. And then there's this section in which Chocolat fits, I suppose, which has, I suppose it's what people call magic realism. And then we've got these psychological thrillers. But, you know, honestly, I look at them and I think, well, the underlying themes of all these books are not that dissimilar. Because whether I'm writing about a small community at St. Oswald's Grammar School or a small community in Asgard or a small community in a village in France, it's still a small community and it's still the interactions of these people and the way that the outsider is othered and one person can make a difference. And sometimes a chaotic element within a community can completely disrupt what's going on. And a lot of it is about the past and the baggage that we carry with us, with our past and why our past defines us. And a lot of it is about perception and transformation, whether we take that as magical transformation or transformation in other elements. And so to me, there's this kind of overarching raft of ideas, which actually just keeps being explored deeper and deeper every time I write a book. And it doesn't really matter what genre the book's in. The ideas are still there and they're still there to be explored. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. You know, it is definitely marketing. It's definitely the publishers that kind of put things into different like niches so it's it's really interesting to hear from your standpoint when the ideas are created where they bubble up from so as a reader I'm always interested in hearing about a book that has had a large impact on you so I've got a theory that everyone that reads has got a book that has had an impact either professionally or personally do you have a book like that and if so what is it well, I have a lot of them and it would take me a long time to think about one particular book because actually there are a lot of different ones. But the one I'm going to tell you about is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And when I read it, I don't think the book was even in print anymore. I was kind of in my late teens at the time, I think. And now she's got a bit more prominence and she's better known. And I'm very glad of it because she's a marvellous writer. And I think that to me, she embodied the kind of unreliable narrator that I love most. 
with a very feminine slant and a feminist slant too. And there was something that she did, not just with language, but with the whole tone and the atmosphere of her book that I'd never met before. I was in love with linguists. I was in love with people like Nabokov and Mervyn Peake and Ray Bradbury, who did things with words and had these kind of word pyrotechnics. But what Shirley Jackson does is a much quieter form of this. And she has this restrained slightly trippy way of depicting the world where she will dwell beautifully on a small detail that seems to contain very little drama, and yet she will imbue it with meaning and with menace in a way that I don't know anybody else has done. And I loved that. And I discovered her actually through a short story, but that was the first novel of hers that I read. And there's this beautiful section, which I think pretty much encapsulates what I love about her writing, because The book is not only, I think, the best haunted house story ever written, it's also one of the best character studies of a young woman with an uncertain past and an uncertain future. And her thoughts, which kind of paint this picture of who she is, and she's an ingenue in this story, but there's a moment at which before she arrives at the haunted house, she goes to a cafe. She's just gone there basically to ask a few questions about the place she's visiting And she has stolen her sister's car to get there and feel slightly bad about it. And there's this little vignette that serves no purpose at all within the plot itself, but which to me completely encapsulates the vibe of the book. And she is watching a little family eating breakfast next to her table. And there's a little girl there who refuses to drink her milk. And she's demanding her cup of stars. And the cup is a cup presumably with stars painted on the inside, and she refuses to drink her milk without it. And they haven't brought it, and they're trying to coax her to drink her milk. And the girl in the book looks at her and, with her mind, talks to this child and says, yeah, you're right, hang on to your cup of stars, because you know what? If you drink without your cup of stars, you'll never see it again. They'll take it away from you, and you'll lose it forever. And I thought, bloody hell, this is a kind of coded feminist message from this book written by a housewife in the 50s or the 60s. And she's put it in there like a little time capsule just for me. And I thought, right, that's it. That's perfect. That's the message. That's amazing, isn't it? So back to you for a minute. Obviously, Adarian Door has just come out and you also published a book called Honeycomb this year, which is inspired by your 10 minute story time stories that you live tweet on Twitter. I'd love to talk to you about that for a second because that is also fabulous. How did that come about? You live tweet stories, don't you, over the course of, say, a 10-minute period? That's right, yeah. Was that just something that just happened? Yes, it started happening pretty much when I joined Twitter. It must have been maybe 10 years ago, and I started to write stories. Partly it was because I didn't know how to use Twitter. I didn't know what to do with it. It didn't seem to have enough attention span to talk about anything important. And yet, I liked its medium, I liked its brevity, and so I started to tell these little stories. It was actually when my husband was building the shed where I work, and so I would report on how the shed was doing. And I would say, oh, this is finished, we've done this, I've moved in. And then I would start tweeting about what aspect the shed had, and these aspects became increasingly surreal. And so I evolved a kind of persona for the shed whereby it changes shape and location every single day, and every day I tweet about what the shed is doing. And I seemed to feel that that was getting some traction with my readers, because if I didn't tweet about the shed, people would say, well, where's the shed? What's it doing? It was clear that I was telling a story here. And one day I went into the shed and it was full of lace wings. It was a day in winter. There was no reason that there would be lace wings there. Lace wing season is really not February. 
but they were everywhere. And I thought, oh, this is a story. And so I invented this character called the Lacewing King, who was basically a bunch of lacewings in a big coat. And I told a little story about it. And then I started to tell other stories on Twitter. And they were generally sparked off by something that I'd seen or something that had happened or current events. And this character kept coming into them. And then other characters joined him. And I realized that not only was I telling these little micro fictions on Twitter among this scrolling, perpetual feed of news, but I was also following an overarching storyline. And at first, I never kept these stories. I just let them go on Twitter. And then I realized that some people were picking them up and keeping them and sending them back to me going, you know, you shouldn't let this go. You should keep a collection of them. And so I started to do that. And I realized that after a certain time, I had just dozens of them. Mm. And I had the makings of a book. And so I rearranged them and did a little bit of collating. And Honeycomb was the result. And meanwhile, before the book came out, because... I saw it as an illustrated book. And obviously, my illustrator, Charles Vess, rather took his time doing the work. I took it into another medium. And with the band that I've been in forever, since I was 16, I came up with the concept of dramatising some of these stories, putting them to music and making a kind of storytelling show, which we've been doing on and off outside of lockdown ever since. Love that, all the different parts coming together. It's so great, isn't it? It's lovely. What I really love about those stories as well, it's hashtag story time. So if you search your profile on Twitter and search the same hashtag, you can then see a whole load of these stories in the history. Yes, you can. Or you can go onto my Kofi account because usually when I've told it on Twitter, I will then brush and polish it, stick it up on my Kofi account so that people can read it without having to scroll around on Twitter. But I think, you know, the fact of writing it on Twitter is important to me because it has a different character. It has an immediacy. It's telling a story, not writing a story. And I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that sense of spontaneity. And so I always want to do it that way rather than hone and polish it and then put it on Twitter because that would just be cheating. I love it. So what's next for you over the course of the rest of this year and early next year? You've obviously had quite a lot going on this year. Have you got any plans or are you just going to see where the rest of the year takes you? Well, you know, I'm continuing to work and I'm going to be publicising a narrow door. So I've got some events online and also some physical events at bookshops, some in Scotland, some in England. And I need to keep on with the actual work that I do that's not just promoting things. So I'm writing several things at the moment and working on two or three things at once, which is my usual method. And of course, continuing to do the kind of work that I've been doing throughout for the Society of Authors, for the ALCS, for various organisations, prizes, this kind of thing. The sort of thing that comes with a writer's life. Lots to keep you busy. Absolutely. Well, Joanne, it's been absolutely lovely chatting with you. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's my pleasure. And best of luck with the publication of Narador. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be a guest. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.